Real or fake? We are a church that follows the Bible. Okay, that's what we hope. Uh, and that's where our plans are. And so we're talking about, okay, when we determine ministries, when we do things, how is it, what are we doing as far as Bible aspects? We've been talking about, we've been saying, okay, definition of a church is very simple from the scriptural principles that we've already observed. An organized assembly of born-again believers who have followed the Lord in baptism that are organized to do God's business following God's word and doing that business. Now, the catch on this is going to be when, what is God's business? And we said as well, just want to review just for those who weren't here last week, is that the week before that we had service, we talked about, okay, why do we call ourselves Baptists? We did it because historically, and we talked a whole lesson and on historically the groups that associated themselves with this name that they had basic similar types of Bible beliefs and they were if you want to do this uh, uh, wordplay they follow into this pattern so that historically Baptist churches in the 1800s early 1900s this historically identified them as believing these basic set of different uh, uh, procedures and practices from Scripture. So then we have the question is, okay, uh, and th- this is critical to all we do. What is our primary duty as believers, as a church when we gather? What is our primary obligation? Now, we understand that we're supposed to be helpful. We understand we come for encouragement. We understand that we come to be able to help and do missions. But over overriding everything, our primary goal, our primary uh, purpose for existence is to what? It's to glorify God. There's multiple passages of Scripture that we've already looked at here in weeks past that this is what we're to be doing. Now, at times, we will do other peripheral types of ministries, activities. We'll do fellowships. We can do youth ministries. We might do the dramas. We might do reenactments. But it's all got to come under this umbrella, bringing glory to God. Then we started saying, okay, when it comes to exactly how does that work, churches have a fourfold basic job to do, taking the idea of bride of Christ, we have worship that we're supposed to be doing, instruction, fellowship, and evangelism. And those are real broad categories. What we've talked about right now is just the idea of, okay, a car, big category. Okay, underneath that you have multiple different other categories, whether they be GMC or they be Ford or whatever. We're into that level, and then we get down a little bit lower is how do we determine what we're going to do as far as worship, instruction, fellowship, and evangelism? And so there are some things that we, in order to get it done, we have to operate with some type of um, decent.
decent, orderly format to get things accomplished. And we talked about last week that the Bible indicates, doesn't use the term, but it indicates there was some concept of membership, a group that people could be put out of or be added into, group that did the selecting of officers. There was something there that was given in the New Testament. We talked about the practical values in this current age about membership. Then we stopped last week talking about organization, that in the organization there had to be some type of government. And the New Testament says there was a government to do everything decently and in order. And their basic format in the New Testament, the churches, what they did is they had what we would call uh, not a hierarchical system where somebody from another city is going to tell us what to do or send us the preachers or give us bills for what we have to contribute to, but rather there are local independent churches. And we talked about this and pointed out several different aspects of it, that the churches were independent of each other in the New Testament, though they had a fellowship, though they cooperated together in supporting the missions in order to help one another out when there was uh, difficulties. You look and say, okay, in Acts chapter 6, they're helping and taking care of their own widows. In Acts chapter 6, they choose their own deacons. The deacons are given direction as far as the duties by those who were the preachers at that time in the church. They ordained their own preachers. Literally, the word is to raise the hands as in to vote. The, um, we pointed out that they hand their, handled their own business, their own affairs. Even how are we going to deal with who's going to be a part of this ministry when it comes to the Gentiles and the Jews working together? They, uh, in the First Corinthians, if there was somebody going wayward, they worked and they corrected their own body. They, they made their own decisions. They even had to deal with individuals. When do we bring those individuals back into our church? That was Second Corinthians that he writes and says, okay, when is somebody to be allowed back into the fellowship? First Corinthians 6 is there was business conflicts between individuals. The church was to select some people and those individuals would deal with their own conflicts within that local church. The congregation chose when they were going to do communion. The congregation is told, here are the qualifications for deacons, for pastors. Now choose men of your own, of your own desires who fit these qualifications. When in First Timothy chapter 5, there's a lengthy discussion about finances in the church, who you're going to help as far as widows, who in the church they're going to, they're going to give that monies to, or who, how they're going to support their pastors. And all of that is defined in those passages by individual churches that they make those decisions. How much is that double honor? How much should the widows be taken care of? And so we have that idea that in the scriptures, there is an, that local church is independent. Their government within is the idea that the congregation makes choices, such as Acts 15, the pastor made recommendation, that was James, and then the congregation, they followed suit in saying, okay, we agree to this, or they would have disagreed, but we agreed to it, and the whole congregation had say in it. So defining government, we'd say pastor-led congregational rule. And then the, the officers I've already alluded to, there's two given in scriptures. We have more that we've added, but the two primary are pastors and deacons. We'll talk about why we've added some more in just a few moments. But the, the discussion that we need to have this morning is this, this, this is the critical discussion, I think, in, in, uh, beyond what we're going to get into. Up to this point, this is critical, why we do what we do. A lot of it surrounds oftentimes, why do the pastors do what they do? Um, people often pick and choose their church based upon the leadership of the church, the, what the pastors do or don't do. And with that in mind, we have to sit up and say, okay, what am I supposed to do? I, I wouldn't doubt I wouldn't doubt this at all, that what we have here is there are some who think what I should do, then there's me that thinks what I should do, 
And then there's a greater authority. What does God say we're supposed to do? Okay, These two could be a conflict with one another, or they could be a conflict even with the Word of God. And so what we need to do is go back and say, what does the Bible say that the preacher's job is? What is he supposed to be doing according to scriptures? If we were to list out a lot of different passages, we would have to stop and say, wait a minute, in order to find out, we need to know what are the titles given. Because what passage refers to the pastor? What passage refers to other officers? And so just to make sure we're all on the same page, and when we look up the verses about what the pastors are supposed to do, let's make sure we're all understanding the different titles that are given, because that'll help explain what's going on. There are five different titles that are given in scripture. They are given, I'm giving you both the Greek and then the English translation of them, and those five titles are in multiple different passages. In some passages, they overlap. He'll use the same title describing the same office, and he'll use them interchangeably. To understand what they mean, let's go back to a a biblical definition of each one of these. When we talk about the presbyteros, uh, anybody get a church name out of presbyteros? Okay, uh, Presbyterian or Presbytery, different things like that. That comes from this idea of this word, the leader of a deliberating assembly. This is the idea of the moderator in a smaller case, the, the chairperson, the person who's leading those things as in a business meeting. But it is a, it is the, a presbytery is a deliberating assembly. The presbyteros is the one who's in charge or leading that assembly. And that's where you get the word that's translated in the King James typically and under English versions as L. Elders. It comes from this word. The other word that shows up frequently is episkopos, uh, another denominational name. Okay, it comes from this idea. The bishop is the work is the supervisor of a working force. It'd be your foreman. It would be your your job site guy in charge. Okay, and so it's an active body working, and he calls that term uses that term about bishop. One is Krux. Krux was the person who would go before, and he would yell out in the streets, if you would, a message from the emperor. Uh, declare we're having a taxation. Everybody needs to go to their hometown. That meant Joseph Mary. Go to Jerusalem to Nazareth, and so the Kerix was the one who proclaimed any type of law, any type of rule, any type of important proclamations or decrees. The town crier is the preacher. Pastor comes from the idea of poimen or shepherd. It has the idea of somebody who is nurturing, taking care of, protecting the flock. It's that shepherd-sheep relationship, and Jesus uses this at times in different passages when he's just through the Spirit of God talking about the job of the pastor. The last one is didas it comes where it's talking about the teacher, the instructor. That one's pretty much, you know, simplistic. You understand that, that definition. Now, when you go in scriptures, and I know that the variety of churches have different points of view. They'll say they'll have pastors, and then they have elders. Or then they'll have deacons, elders, and then pastors. And some of you have come from churches that have that variety. Um, let, me, let me just point out something. In the scriptures, the terms that I've just given you, they're used interchangeably. The deacons and elders are not the same thing in scriptures. They're, they're very distinct. You have at passages like this, you have an Acts where Paul is calling together all the elders from Miletus. He's meeting them there. And he's getting them from Ephesus. He's meeting at, at Miletus. And he's getting the, all the elders together. And he's having a conversation. And this is where he says, you know, I have not, I have not feigned to declare the whole counsel of God unto you. And he gives them his testimony and how, and it's his farewell address to the elders. When he's talking to them, he 
he mentions and he calls them, this passage says he calls for the elders. When he's speaking to them, he addresses them as overseers or bishops. And so that same group that he's talking to, he calls bishops. So in that text, elders and bishops are the same thing. Another text that shows up in Titus, he says, okay, I want you to make sure that we're ordaining elders in the church, and he gives the qualifications. In the qualifications, he says, a bishop must be blameless. Again, the same term, the same office, he's using two different terms interchangeably. So elders are, we can't say biblically that pastors are, and elders are different. No, they're not. They're the same. Okay, they're the same office. Um, elders is used at another passage in First Peter. You'll see it in a moment. We'll read it, but let me put it up. The elders among you, I exhort. And as he's exhorting them, telling them what to do, he tells them to poimain or feed, shepherd the flock, to having the bishopric or the oversight thereof. And then he refers again to their relationship to the flock as being examples. Point being is elders, pastors, bishops, all three of those titles are using the same passage to define one office. There's another text that shows up in Ephesians. It talks about pastors and even the teachers. This is the gifts that are given to the church in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And so you put them together and they help us to define, okay, what are some of the, the different jobs? Now, the title reverend. We were asking Lou when we were finishing up last week. What about the title reverend? And most of us will shy away from it just because we don't feel comfortable with it. But it is in our culture, the title comes when somebody's ordained. It's a... It's, it's a yeah, a universal title for idea of being ordained, and I'd prefer not to use it personally. Somebody asked me afterwards, actually the somebody was Pastor Binkley, um, he said, what about, why don't you ask people what they think when we are called Father? He and I have both had that experience here, that people have come and they have said Father Burgraff. Okay, and they obviously come from a church background where they called their priest or whatever Father, and our immediate response is, call no man Father, for you have one Father which is in heaven. And so we respond that way that you know, I, I can be called Father by four people. Okay, that's it. Okay, the four kids. Um, why so many different titles? It's obvious. Okay, they help define what the job is. Okay, and what they're supposed to be doing. Now, taking it a bit further, okay, what exactly is our job? I'm going to start in First Peter chapter 2. Or chapter 5, down in verse 2. Let me read the whole section. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Here's, now he lists elders. Here's what you're supposed to do. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the bishopric thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage but being examples to the flock. So when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now let's start there. Okay, according to God's word the pastor is supposed to help lead the flock like a shepherd would lead the flock. Not drive it, not force it, not be dictatorial, but provide leadership by example, exhortation, and encouragement. And that's the same thing as Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 talks about those who have the rule over you, that you uh, recognize them and understand that they're going to have to give an account before God for the rule that they exercised over you. There's another concept here in the same text. We're supposed to be feeding the congregation via the teaching, the preaching, the counseling, giving out the word of God. We're supposed to be feeding you. So that when you come, you're fed so that you have something to carry you through the week. 
And so that idea of feeding the congregation. With that in mind, if we're supposed to feed you the Word of God, there is an inherent quality that says we've got to be studying. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2, do you remember what it says? Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be rightly dividing the word of truth. In context, that isn't given to everybody in the church, though everybody can apply that we should study that way. Who in particular is he talking to? He's talking to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church of Ephesus. He's saying, you've got to make sure that you study. And as in just previous verses to this, you're training others to do likewise. Make sure you train those who will be faithful in ministry later on that they study the Word of God. Um, the other text, he's commenting on Timothy. He says, Timothy, from a child you have known the Scriptures. They have made you wise unto salvation. And then he goes on, he says, all Scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for instruction, reproof, instruction, and correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be completely or thoroughly, thoroughly furnished. The idea is that we're supposed to be studying the Word. Okay, so preacher, okay, you're supposed to be feeding the flock, you're supposed to be leading the flock, you're supposed to be studying the Word of God so that you can tell them something from the Word. In Acts chapter 6 where they're selecting deacons, he says, okay, there's lots of work to be done, visiting the widows, caring for the widows, and it's becoming so overwhelming for the men that are leading the church in Jerusalem that he says, we need to have help. It's creating a problem in the church that we're not catching up and taking care of everybody. Growing churches have problems. There is no perfect church. And so the apostles said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have you select seven men out from amongst you. We will call them deacons. They are going to help take care of visiting the widows, ministering to the widows, and the physical needs that are, that are showing up in the flock, so that we may give ourselves to the studying of the word and to prayer. And that idea comes that the apostles knew that even though they had the Spirit, they had a special relationship with the Spirit as apostles, they as the, the New Testament leaders of that church, they needed to be praying for the congregation. We know that we're supposed to protect the congregation from a variety of things. Flip over to Timothy, and let me point out a couple different things that will show up in churches in the New Testament that he says Timothy warned the congregation about. First Timothy chapter 4. He says, and this is a, this is a verse that talks about our church, being be, having to be careful. First Timothy chapter four. Now the Spirit speaks expressly that when, in the latter times, that's in our days, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. They'll forbid to marry. They'll command to abstain from certain meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused. It is to be received with thanksgiving if it is sanctified. Look at verse 6. Put the brethren in remembrance of these things, then if you do that, you shall be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine. But, verse 7, refuse profane and old wise fables and exercise yourself to godliness. His point is, we've got to be protecting. The shepherd needs to protect the flock sometimes by pointing out the errors that are around, by pointing out what is, what is theologically dangerous to the congregation. Let, let's take it a step further. In 1 Timothy 5, look 
here further. There could be the possibility of corruption in the leadership of the church. He says in verse 19, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others may also see. And he goes on, talks even further about how God judges even the angels. The point is that he's telling Timothy, you be careful. You be careful of your colleagues that if they're doing wrong, you've got to address them doing wrong. Okay, let's take a contemporary issue that is creating mass chaos within the framework of Christianity. The contemporary issue of major churches hiding and covering up child pedophilia, right? Okay, it's in the news all over. Are even some people responding to Christianity as a whole and saying Christianity as a whole is corrupt because one denomination did not deal with leadership who were acting wrong? That's happening. That's happening. Okay. Uh, Can clergy as a whole be thrown in the same barrel with priests who have molested children? Can all clergy be suspect now? That happens in our society. Okay, God says that if we have somebody within our leadership that does wrong, that does immoral, inappropriate things, should we cover it up? No. No, if it is a, if it is a factual situation, we're supposed to address it in a public sense. Not to destroy the person, but to protect the testimony of the cause of Christ. Okay, in other words... If, you, if, if, something, if I were guilty of that, okay, I'm not. If I were guilty of that, you should take action and you should, you should pursue it to the extent that all the legal um, issues are addressed. You shouldn't cover it up. You shouldn't say, well, we'll deal with it here in the building. Take the legal action as well. Do what is appropriate and, and rebuke and, and take it to the, to the limits of, of what the law requires. Don't keep it from the law. If we keep things like that from the law, what happens? We as a group become liable. Okay, so there's wisdom. And he says this. He says, okay, if somebody has a proven accusation against them, then let's deal with it and let's not cover it up. And yet at the same time, Love also does what? It covers a multitude of sin. Okay, and so we have to keep that in a balance that we don't crucify the person, we don't, we don't burn them at the stake, but at the same time, we do what is appropriate. And so that, that he says, okay, pastors, you've got to make sure you're protecting the congregation, okay, in the sense of even within the leadership. You've got to protect the congregation from internal difficulties, Okay, here's what happens in this text. Look at earlier in the chapter. There's a growing problem happening in the church. Timothy, you've got to address the growing problem. It's, he, he talks about it in verse 7. He says, And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. If any provide not for his own house, especially for those of, or provide for his own and of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and worse than an infidel. In this text, he's talking about individuals who have a widow in the church, a widow, a relative in the church an elderly relative. And he's saying there are some in the church, church who are being irresponsible. They are not fulfilling their, re, their duty of taking care of the elderly family member. You've got to rebuke that. You've got to stop that. And why is it some people were probably not taking care of their elderly relatives? Maybe it was greed. Maybe it was laziness. But one of the, what he has already written in Scripture is this is pure and undefiled religion. 
visiting the widows and taking care of those who are orphans. Do you remember he wrote that in James chapter 1? It is basic Christianity 101. And he says, if somebody in the flock is not doing this, you've got to correct it. In Thessalonians, he writes about how it needs to be corrected if somebody is lazy. And they're saying, well, the Lord's coming back, so I don't need to go to work. I'll just wait until the rapture takes place. And so there's different issues that are growing in the church. He says, you've got to correct, you've got to address. Okay? In this same context, what he goes on and talks about in the next few verses is, Timothy, be careful of something. Look at where he says in verse 9. Following that up, he said, Timothy, make sure, let not a widow be taken into the number under, he gives 60 years of age, having been the wife of one man, well reported of. What's he talking about? He's talking about the church is now giving monies to help support the widows who don't have incomes and who are in desperate shapes. And he's saying you've got to be careful that not everybody fits into the category who says, I have a need. And he's giving qualifications for restricting who you're going to be generous towards. That, that just strikes us odd. We say we should be generous to everybody. And he's saying, no, wait a minute, there's a limitation. Because if you're giving money freely, you might be propagating laziness. Does that ever happen in a welfare state? Okay. And he's saying, don't let the church become a welfare state. And in other words, if people come asking for money, he's implying to Timothy, you should be doing some investigation. You should be checking out if it's a legitimate need. In fact, when it comes to the widows, he gives some standards here. Okay? They have to have a reputation. They have to be at a certain age. And he talks about it. So, Timothy, you help protect the church from being taken advantage of financially. Okay? Th- those are some of the varieties of de- some of the duties that are given. Let's go a little bit further. He says in 2 Timothy, if you go over a couple chapters, he talks about what happens if there's somebody wayward in the church. Down in verse 25. He says, and the servant of the Lord, I'm going to catch in verse 24 of chapter 2. And the servant of the Lord must not strive or fight, must not beat up somebody, okay? But be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. They're, they're, they're doing something that's going to cause them their own harm. If per God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. So go and teach. Go and correct errant behavior, errant doctrine. Go to them. Try to instruct. We're supposed to guide the body. Like in Acts, we would go to Acts 15. James gives a suggestion to the body. James is, is the brother of Jesus there speaking in, in uh, Acts, and he is going to give the suggestion. In, uh, in helping to select leaders, Timothy, Titus, you help teach the congregation. Here are some of the standards for who we're going to have as pastors slash deacons. In regarding financial matters, help give direction in those areas. As far as some things, and, and you know, the reality is, Okay, let's, let's, let's go back to that, that illustration of somebody not taking care of a relative or some widow living in a certain way. The, he's saying that, Timothy, you might know more information than the congregation as a whole knows. There is that possibility. Is, you know, if I can bring it to modern day. Is there a possibility I might know something about somebody's more private life than the rest here? because of dealing with things. And he says, okay, use that knowledge, not in a public sense, but in a protective way to make sure that we are helping out legitimate situations or we're correcting certain things. This is the critical mass. This is where uh, I think our biggest duty belongs, is guiding everything. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, 
It says, And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. What he's telling Timothy is, Timothy, you're to be reproducing yourself in the ministry. You're supposed to be training others to do the ministry. You're not supposed to be doing it all yourself. You're supposed to be training others to do the job. Okay, that it takes, let's go back to that old adage. Is it, what, what is harder to do and what is better to do? Somebody who is, who's, you know, they're living by the seaside, give them 10 fish or give them a rod and teach them to fish. What would be the easier one to do? Give them the fish. What is the harder thing to do? Teach them. But what one's going to be more long-lasting? The teaching them. The teaching and training so that they can do what? They can provide for themselves. Here's where we get into what I call critical mass of ministry. And this, this really is philosophically for our staff. This is to drive us. Okay, and this will explain why we do some of the things that we do. Okay, in 2 Timothy 2, we're supposed to be training others to do the ministry beyond us. We're not supposed to be building a ministry that's surrounded about myself. I am not to be building an empire in a church that will collapse with my absence. That is wrong. That is prideful. Rather, what we're supposed to be doing is training, developing others to carry on the ministry. Right? Okay. Have you ever seen families? Somebody builds a family business, and it's all around the one person. Okay, and when that person disappears, everything collapses. Okay, that can happen in any field, in any area, in any of our lives. Okay, we're supposed to, as parents, be training our children to continue on in you know something profitable, beneficial, as long as it honors the Lord. In the same thing ministry-wise, my biggest goal, uh, job is to be training people, okay, and helping people to grow in the Lord. I'll develop it here in the next, in the next few minutes. A major focus of pastors is not just to do the work of the ministry themselves. By the way, that, that leads me to this. This is, this is my thinking. If we can't get people to do a certain ministry, then we shouldn't do that ministry. Then we should stop that ministry. Okay, does that make sense? Because if, you, if we're not training you or you're not getting involved in that ministry, then we should focus our attention on something else where we can train you and get you involved in the ministry. So sometimes we drop ministries. Sometimes we try to announce and start something, but it doesn't go anywhere. Sometimes, because if we're the only ones that show up and do the ministry, uh, that's not the pulpit ministry, that's different. You know, that's not the counseling ministry. That's different because we understand that those are specified duties. But in a broader sense, okay, I'll give you an illustration. Is it nice to have a nursery? How do you respond if we don't have a nursery? If you have little kids in here, sitting in here, okay, would that distract you? Okay. Some of it might distract some of you. Some of you won't make any difference. Okay. If that child were sitting on your lap. Sitting still for the whole time I'm preaching. Could that be a distraction? Okay. Is it a benefit to have a nursery? By the way, is there any biblical standard for having a nursery? Is there any biblical mention of nurseries? What, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye? Okay. Yeah, we are. Okay. <laughs> the, that there, there's... There, <laughs> 
we can make the Bible say anything we want it to say. <laughs> if there's not personnel to run the, the nursery, then what would we do? We're going to stop the nursery. There's a church in the Midwest that the pastor tried this experiment this summer we visited. And it was like, wow. I said to the people we were with, don't you have a nursery? Because it sounded like it was in the auditorium. And all the movement around the auditorium sounded, it looked like it was in the auditorium. And they said, well, they can't get anybody to work the nursery. So they opted just to shut the nursery for a while. Guess what? Three weeks after we visited, they put a card out. Any volunteers working in the nursery? They got a whole bunch. <laughs> the, um, you know, if uh, we're announcing, we're saying we need children's teachers. If we're not going to get people to teach the children, then how do we keep on doing the children's ministry? Okay, it's, it's, it's simple things like that. Um, but reproducing ourselves so others around do the ministry. I want you to go with me to Ephesians 4. Because this to me, and, and again, the, you don't see it this way, I'm sure. I, what I'm sharing with you right now is what I understand ministry is about. This is the philosophy that I operate by and lead by and we do our staff by. And so giving you a little bit of an insight into the way I'm thinking, which God bless you if you can figure that out. My wife hasn't after all these years. But to just give you a sense of here's how I understand ministry is supposed to be done. In Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, and he's talking about how church is to operate. Look at verse 11. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some, pa- some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For is the next word. This is the purpose that he gave these people. For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. It doesn't say for them to build a name to themselves. For them to be well known. For them to get rich on publishing books. Okay. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with publishing books. I didn't mean it that way, but it's the idea. This is what we're supposed this is my primary task. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ, until in other words, it keeps on going, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. When will that happen? When do we all come to be perfect in Christ? Okay, when, when we get home, when the rapture takes place. So in other words, how long is verse 12 applicable to churches and church leaders? Until, until the Lord takes us back. This is an ongoing ministry for churches and the church leadership. That we, why do we do it? That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Are there, are there people who want to teach us their own little, what, what do I want to call it? Their, yeah, their, their own little, you know, their own, their pet, their pet doctrine. Let me use that. Are there people out there that want to teach a pet doctrine that might profit them. Yes, no. Yeah, yeah, that can happen. It, it's like, um, it's like. Okay, I'll, I'll throw this out. Okay, if I were to teach you, and this has been taught in history, you cannot understand the Word of God. You aren't anointed the way I am anointed, and because I have a special anointing, like they did in the Old Testament, they were specially anointed, and you touch not the Lord's anointed. You don't question me. You don't challenge me. And if you really want to know what the Bible says, you have to come and ask me. Because I'm the only one here who is able to understand the Word of God. Because Scripture is of no private interpretation. 
You're not supposed to privately interpret it. Only I'm supposed to do that. Who would benefit by that? Who gets, who gets put on a pedestal? Who gets untouched? And if I say to you, God told me that you're supposed to give twice the amount of money because I'm to have more vacations. <laughs> now, have churches done that very doctrine that I just mentioned? Yes. Yes. Are there peoples out there that want to take advantage of believers that present themselves as clergy, as ministers? Okay, is it everybody? Is there, no, but that happens. I mean, there are hucksters. He's warning us about that. And he says, okay, we've got to train the people. You've got to help them to ed- be edified for the work of the ministry so that they are stable, that they recognize, that they know, and they, they avoid error. But he says, what you want to do is speak the truth in love so that they may grow up into him... Christ in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacting by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every single part, they may make increase of the body unto the edifying itself in love. Verse 16 is very much like 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12. 1 Corinthians 12 uses the illustration not of a building being built where every piece is being put in just exactly but 1 Corinthians 12 uses the same idea where every part contributes and it's not a building but he uses what illustration a body body that every part needs to contribute so that the whole keeps getting stronger and bigger and better and so in this text he's talking the same thing but in the idea that it's a building that we're working at uh, in, in picture form okay let's walk through God gave preachers as a spiritual gift. That's verse 11. Okay. Fact number two. Their primary task is to help to mature the saints. That's verse 12. Okay. So that the saints can do the ministry unto one another. Okay. It's not that the pastors do all the work. It's to equip the saints to do the work. Okay. So that you as a body part are helping to contribute to the body. In other words, it, you, you don't grow. You won't grow unless you're doing what? You're giving. You're active. You're supplying. You're participating. Otherwise, you don't grow. And neither does the church that God has put you in. It won't grow. And so the goal of the preacher is to get, his, get the people involved. To get them to minister to one another. Go a step further. This is God's plan for all of the church age. It doesn't stop. We already paused at that verse. It's until the rapture takes place. So this is still a valid uh, practice and philosophy of church that you don't hire the preacher to do the calling. You don't hire the preacher to do all the work of discipling. Who's supposed to disciple? All of us. We're to train you to do discipleship. Um... You don't, hire, you don't hire somebody to say, we're hiring you because you'll, you'll take care of providing all the fellowship now. No, we're supposed to work together in fellowshipping with one another. We're to be hospitable one towards another. Okay. Now, can the clergy help expedite that? Can they help facilitate that? That's their job. But it's the congregation's job to be able to get involved, to be able to help do things. How do we do it? How do we do our job? To train by teaching the truth in love. 
okay, that we keep on pointing people to Christ, I make a mistake. I make a huge mistake if I make myself the center of attention. Okay? And yet at the flip side, and I, this, this, I, I'm conflicted many Sundays. This is my con, con, where I'm conflicted. I know that personally, standing here up front, I become the center of people's attention during the course of the service. They're listening to me. I understand that. And I understand I want to present things in a way that keeps your attention. I want to present things in a way that helps you to focus. I work on wanting to present things so that you keep connected. Okay? Because in the length of any average, average attention span, people change thinking how often? It used to be every seven minutes you change it in media presentations. You change things because on average people's minds start, they'll, they'll keep attention for seven minutes. And then, but with the new media, it's dropping even less. Okay? In fact, it, even, it, it works this way. You, you just watch throughout the odd time. Some of you are going to, don't make this the focus of your worship today. But, <laughs> but it is interesting, is just watching movement around the auditorium. Oftentimes, after a few minutes, it's like there's a wave that goes across this room. Everybody kind of shifts position. Okay? And especially if we all of a sudden give a story or an illustration, that's the moment everybody wants to shift. Okay? To get reset for the next thing. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's at the same time, I have to recognize, okay, so I need to work at even presenting the material. But then I struggle with, it's not what I do, it has to be... Christ. So I'm conflicted. I have a responsibility, but I need to rely upon the Holy Spirit and the Lord to do the work. But I still should do my very best to help. Does that make sense? Okay. And so the idea is that in, in this ministry, it's not about, it shouldn't be, and yet I know that there's responsibility, and I know that in leadership that it happens, but it's got to be more about Christ. We've got to point people to Christ. And it's got to be about him. So, you know, so the, uh, the issue is get out of the way and let Jesus do the work. And yet at the same time, somebody's got to stand in the way and say, let me point you to Christ. And so it's difficult, but that's the goal. And so the idea is the body parts are never to stop ministering. That's, the, that's what we're, we're here about, is you ministering to one another. You ministering to baby Christians who come in and you loving on them. Training, encouraging to do that, to help them. You taking young couples and you loving on them to help them to know how to parent in a Christian way. You taking widows who are hurting, who need some of that fellowship and some of you who have been there. Okay, well, what can we do? That, that's even like the, the ministries that we start. Bible Institute. Let's train so we can get teachers. Let's train that they can, they can take and take viable, valid truth and be able to teach the kids. So that when the kids come out of this church, the kids know doctrine. That the kids know the Bible. I'm amazed by Bible ignorance. What some churches must be doing, I'm amazed. I'm amazed. We were, there were some of us who were talking recently about different calls that we were making. And one of, them, one of the folk was just sharing that they made a call on somebody who claimed to be in a Bible-believing church for years. 
And they asked them and made the comment. They said, well, you know, and the person from our church was saying, well, there's that Bible verse that talks about the golden rule. And they said, the what? The golden rule. One of our folk was sharing that. They were recently talking with the individuals, and the individuals had no idea what the Ten Commandments referred to at all. And they had been in a Bible-believing church for years. Now, I don't know what that means, being in a Bible-believing church. Does that mean you only go Sunday morning so you miss out on a lot of the teaching? Okay. Um, I, I don't, I, but I am, I am appalled by the fact that there is Bible ignorance abounding. And so we want to train our teachers so that they can help our kids so when our kids get challenged in schools, they can tell the truth. They have an idea. They can, they can, when they go off to go and leave your home, that those kids are well grounded between what you've done as parents and what we've provided as a church. So we train. And we say, okay, let's train. Let's do a Bible Institute to help train. Let's do a grief share so that we can have those who are going through it help minister to others who just are struggling and not sure how to get over a hurdle. And so we create and do some ministries that help others to do the work. So it comes down to this. Our goal is to help the body to keep on growing at all times. But, and that growth is, is growing internally, strength-wise, but it also must include growing in a numerical sense by reaching other people. If we come to a point where we say we're big enough, okay, and we don't do more outreach, we are violating the Great Commission. We must constantly... Now, maybe we get big enough for this building. And then we change some gears and do some things. But we never stop evangelism. We never say we've reached enough people. I've told you the story that when we were first here, one of the deacons came to us in the very first two years of this church's existence. One of the deacons came to us and said, I think we need to change something in this church with you boys. Talking to about my brother and I. We are getting too many people saved in this church. Okay? He was no longer a deacon within a week. Okay? Um, but that was a mindset. Us few and no more joining us. And so we need to, this is the principle, we need to keep evangelism. We need to, I, I've been asked this. Why do you promote missions so much? We should be more concerned about ourselves. Because it's what Christ came to do. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was... Okay, so it's our obligation. I know there's work in, in my life. There's work in your life. I know we need to grow. Every one of us needs to grow. But you need to also be helping others come to Christ. And so that's what we have to keep on reminding Saying, okay, we need to be feeding more. We need to be training more. Here's some, here's some conclusions I have in my mind. A healthy church growth doesn't come and last if only a few are doing the work. This isn't good work. This isn't a good, healthy church if only a handful are doing the work. A healthy church growth doesn't come and last if preachers alone do the work. Okay, if you say, but we hired you. Okay. If, if a healthy church growth doesn't come and last unless we train others in the work, that's for me to remember, okay? You to remember that, yes, we're supposed to, you're supposed to help in that aspect. Demands pastors provide opportunities for and train others to minister and disciple. So that's, that's where I, I operate by. 
I think my biggest responsibility time-wise is therefore investing in prayer, study, and training others. I don't think my biggest time-wise is to... Please don't get this wrong. Don't get, I am more than willing to do it as needs arise. But I don't think being a good shepherd under the Lord Jesus Christ is come and help you and do your chores around your house. To just... Yeah, and, I, and I'm not saying I don't. I wouldn't do those things to get to know some of you better. That's not what I mean. But I've heard it said multiple times growing up in the Midwest. Oh, he was a really good pastor because most every week he would come out and help me milk the cows because he knew I was busy. So he spent several mornings a week helping to milk the cows. Wonderful, great, good to help milk the cows. But what were the people getting fed? milk of the word or the meat of the word and so there's a balance here that says okay help get to know people but at the same time be careful that we and, 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 and I've got to tell you this, this, is, this is where I struggle it is easier to go and do the chores it's a whole lot easier okay for me it's a lot harder to keep concentrating and focused and praying that's hard I would rather at times go and do, hey, chores around here. I'd rather paint a room at times than to prepare a sermon. Painting a room, I know I'm not going to get flack. <laughs> Painting, wrong color. Yeah, that, that's true. That could happen. Yeah. Not from the colorblind, anyway. Yeah. Let's go. Second Timothy 2 is the same thing. Train faithful men. So here's, here's, here's where, it, and this, this takes a step further. We are to be focusing on, this is, this is going to go south real quick, because some aren't going to like what I'm saying. We're to be focusing on reproductive ministries. Can churches be doing ministries for the sake of doing the ministry? Can we just do reenactments year after year after year and just keep doing them infin- ad infinitum and think we're doing ministry? Can we just be conducting junior churches, Sunday schools, and just do the same old, same old, and it's not reproducing people? Can we do, can we do ministries that keep us busy, but they don't produce? Do you know what I mean? What I'm getting at is we can do ministries that don't reach people. That don't reach, that what? Yeah, that we're just busy. And by the way, can we make ourselves really busy? Yeah, that we can be busy, 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 busy doing stuff that really doesn't reproduce in people. Uh, that can happen in church so easy. We, we can just do, do, do. We can be busy seven days a week. I had a pastor tell me, this was this pastor's philosophy, and I worked with him for a period of time um, in, in planting a church. He said, what you do in your church to keep your people in your church is you have something at least five nights a week in the church. He says, that way everybody gets tied to the church, and they keep so busy, they don't have time to do other stuff, and they become very dependent upon the church. I don't want to be busy five nights a week, Okay. You, and so in the other two nights, where do you put your kids? Where do you put your family? 
Okay. But his idea was what we're going to do is we're going to just keep people busy, busy, busy. Because if we're busy, we're doing what's good. Have you ever been busy and then stop and say, what am I doing? I am just so busy for the Lord, but I'm not even close to the Lord anymore. And so what we need to do is reproductive ministries. While there are some things pastors must personally and privately do. I've mentioned these. Okay. When it comes to open public ministries, we must engage and encourage ministries that promote and have potential of reproducing growing disciples. If our reenactment isn't reaching people, I'm stopping it again. We did that a few years ago. We stopped it because I thought we were, getting, we were shifting where we shouldn't be with it. It was just becoming busy work. If our Bible Institute isn't producing people that are willing to disciple others, I'm stopping it. If we're not doing ministries that are reaching people, but they're busy ministries. Okay? If the Spanish ministry doesn't reach and it just becomes keeping Bill and Teresa busy, we're stopping it. Does that make sense? If the youth ministry doesn't keep reaching and developing, then we're going to stop, a chill. We're going to stop the youth ministry. Okay? We're, we, we aren't about being busy. We're to be productive. Productivity means reproducing ourselves, not just doing work, not just keeping things you know, busy because I'm getting a paycheck, so I want to keep, us, keep busy because then you keep paying me or the staff. By the way, this goes for staff as well. Okay? And the staff, if they don't know it, they're hearing the warning right now. If they're not reproducing disciples, we don't need them on staff. I didn't hear any amen from staff members, okay? But I, I'm, I'm convinced this is, this is what ministry is about. That we're supposed to be reproducing. Now, flip that over. Do I think the staff is reproducing disciples? Yes, yes, okay. But if that stops, then we're going to, we're going to change staff, okay? If it stops as a whole that our church loses a flavor for wanting to evangelize and reach others, then who should you ask to resign? The leadership. Yeah. That's what ministry is about. Ministry is engaging others, training them to do the ministry so they can contribute. Pastors are trainers, facilitators, not just to do the job themselves. So if we're here and we're saying we've got an outreach ministry that we're doing, if nobody else is jumping on board then change that ministry. If that ministry isn't reaching people, change that ministry. So then what should we do? There's a whole other discussion that goes, but let me, let me wrap up this one. I didn't get as far as I wanted. Since most churches have only one pastor, how can one guy do all these jobs of, that we've listed? Well, churches, when they're able, should have multiple elders or pastors. That's a possibility. But we have to remember this. For churches like I've pastored in situations where I was the only guy, 125 people in the church, and have to recognize, okay, it can be done because it's a gift from God. That God enables, just like he gifts you at times to do certain things. Just like some of you, you say, i got one child, and that's all I can handle. How can somebody handle 20 kids? God gifts them for that opportunity. Okay. And so in that, in that regard, isn't it time that churches finally recognize the value of a female pastor? We get asked this frequently. Okay. Can ladies at times, could they do, could they do um, a better job? at times than what guys can do in certain areas? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, that, that's totally understandable. However, the Bible limits, ladies, as far as ministry goes, not having a female pastor has nothing to do with a cultural bias, and it's not against that I'm against ladies. I wish people would stop saying this. You're just against ladies. I married one. <laughs> I have two daughters. I'm not against females, okay? That's not the issue. This has nothing to do with a bias or a prejudice. This has to do with 1 Timothy 3.1. If any, and it says man in your English. In the Greek, it says male, okay? The word Andres. If any male desires the office of a bishop, he, a masculine pronoun, desires, and then it goes on, and it even says he needs to be the blank of one. Okay, a husband. And this isn't transgender or gay marriage in this text. Okay, it's a male. And it's male because God has determined that. Okay, what about the deacons? Well, that's the big question. What about them deacons? Okay, I had a professor that I was telling somebody just this week when I was doing uh, the early part of my doctoral studies when I started it. And I went in one class, and it was my most disappointing class, and I went and talked to the professor about it. Because the professor, it was a good man, knew him for years. He had pastored a small church for just a few years. He came, he started teaching this class, and as he taught this class, one of his premise areas when he went to 1 Timothy chapter 3, he opened up that discussion that day in class and said, now when it comes to deacons you're going to have problems. And that's how he started his discussion with deacons. And then all of his stories in that lecture were about how the deacons were bad. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I believe God has gifted churches with deacons. And he has brought them in to be a help. And they are our partners in ministry. And they and I have to work together for this one purpose, to serve you that we minister to you. I got to stop there, okay?